0: WFCAC coming at you, keeping you company all hour or so long, spinning classic hits from yesteryear, letting those memories take you back to what really weren't happier times. But if reflection inherently involves the imposition of a narrative on an imperfect record of subjective experience, isn't it memory's prerogative to make it a happier one? Coming up is an oldie from Johnny T and the Aussie, backed up by Randall Kleiser, doing a cover of the only hit from the duo of Jacobs and Casey, Here's Grease chris you killed two
1: birds with one excellent stone i couldn't even do an intro except to say this now you might think from what you're hearing that we're going to go into the 70s in the disco era here but no This is the theme song to a movie about the 50s, Chris, of course, and it's part of why making sense doesn't mean that your entertainment is going to be successful or unsuccessful. In other words, the rules don't need to apply. And I think, anyway, that's enough. (laughs) I did have a piece of viewer mail. I was going through some of the episodes and on the Libsyn.com page for the series, people can leave notes which don't appear anywhere but on the page themselves, and I miss them sometimes. Anyway, sent us this message back in February, and I'm only just now discovering it. This was on one of our top 10 episodes, which is Monkey Shines, which we had a great time discussing. He's from Japan, and he says, I will excuse you. I am Japanese, and my name is... Well, I will tell Google's opinion and way of thinking. A company cannot be established with one president. If there are employees in the general affairs department, there are many employees of salespeople. In the case of Google, it is thought that IT engineers are the center, and the company is established for the first time when all the staff of all stakeholders become one. Mm -hmm. That is the same thing as We Are the World, which Mr. Michael Jackson and Mr. Lionel Richie, who was about 30 years ago, worked on. There is a president. A lot of employees come. So the company is We Are the World itself. I will excuse you. P.S. P.S. I cannot speak English. So I will give you this message after translating it with smartphone translation application. I'm really sorry if translation is a rude word. I suggest to you as an actor that this should be your audition monologue from this point forward. It's modern. It has elements of history and the ways in which we attempt to communicate and reach out digitally and yet are separated by a gulf of misunderstanding and the ways in which the music of Mr. Lionel Richie can bridge that gap.
0: For my next avant-garde yes. performance piece audition. Doesn't that have I mean, real, to be a monologue. Like,
1: real poetry and the way the words flow and the way they sort of make sense, but also no sense at all? William um, Burroughs is jealous. If he weren't dead, he'd be eating his heart out. Well, please send us more correspondence. Hit us up on Facebook, any of our social media accounts, at and Podcast. And you can always email the pod at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com. I love that song, famously written by Barry Gibb, sung by Frankie Valli without Without. any other seasoning. (laughs) And was given to the film, I believe, after the animated sequence that opens 1978's Grease was already completed and scored to a different song. And Robert Stigwood, creator of the famous RSO label that if you did any drugs in the 70s, you're familiar with on an album cover. He managed the Bee Gees. And through this concept to Barry Gibb, how about a theme song? To which Barry Gibb said, "Okay, great. Let me I can't do an Aussie accent. Let me get my (laughs) let me get my notebook out, Robert. So Barry gets his notebook out, puts on his tinted glasses and he says, all right, give me what you got. What, What are we talking about? Stigwood says, "Okay, the movie is called. Greece. And Barry Gibb was like, "Jesus Christ, Robert, Greece? What? How that's that's the word? How am I supposed to write a song about the word Greece? What the hell?" Yeah, it's not a pretty word. It's not a pretty <laughs> word. And it's another like if you step back from what this is and has been for 40 years, it's a very weird thing to title something. Yeah. It's just a strange logo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anecdotally from that conversation, 20 minutes later, Stigwood says, Barry Gibb called him back and said, remember when I said Grease is the word? How about Grease is the word? How about that as an in for the song? And somehow this song fits what's to come, even though, again, it has nothing to do with the timeframe that we're in. Kind of akin to... What's the Swayze movie with Jennifer Gray where they're dancing? At Dirty the Dancing. Like that was set in the 60s, yet it has an obviously contemporary mid 80s song, Time of My Life, which
0: they're dancing to. I have to admit, when seeing Dirty Dancing, it never occurred to me that yeah. that wasn't right now. Of course, I had the same problem with Happy Days. What do you mean, Happy Days? As a kid watching Happy Days in syndication, I didn't put together that it was like a period piece from. Oh. I was just like, yeah, I guess there's still. People who dress like that. People who dress like that. Yeah. Not around me, but I sort of missed the point of both. To start with Grease,
1: I mean, this is the first movie we've done. It doesn't even matter what you or I think. This yeah. is like our, <laughs> our opinion about this. We can and will talk about things that we liked and disliked about it. But I mean, it exists unto itself. I hadn't seen this movie probably since 1979. I went to it with my grandmother in the movie theater as some kind of after school uh-huh. treat. I probably haven't seen it since then. That's shocking to me. So I watched it a couple of nights ago. And I was trying to think of another film that is so itself that you kind of need to experience it one time all the way through just to kind of orient yourself to what the hell is going on. And then I watched it again last night with the Randall Kleiser commentary, and I could appreciate it a little bit more, even though I appreciated the songs. Number one, Travolta, even in this, he's magnetic. He's incredible. But there's also some things about it that are so bizarre and and so nonsensical with what's going on that it doesn't work as a movie, quote unquote, like a linear piece of storytelling. It's so all over the place and not even really trying, but that's not the point. I mean, yeah. my God, I didn't know all the backstory and the history of it.
0: I had known a little bit of, I had a similar situation as you when trying to think like, hmm, what is this movie about or what does it say? There are things that it is mm-hmm. about. And yet that pales in comparison to the experience of watching it. And the pieces that are great or at least good or enjoyable in yeah. some way, like, Pearls on a pearl necklace. Yeah. Like they're, they don't really connect with each other. They don't right. have to. There's enough of a narrative just by the fact that it's about high school and about youth that you don't care about that stuff. And by the time you do get to the end and everybody's cheering, you don't quite know what the hell is going on. But that, to me, does capture something about the, the vibrancy and excitement of youth, which if the movie is about anything, the, the best thing you can say about it. Is is that?
1: That's just youth in America in the fifties. That good old time, as you mentioned in your brilliant radio-style <laughs> intro, that everyone wants to get back to, or at least many people think that's or the think good. That, yeah, that's the good old days where you know what's the line? Did she fight some horribly sort of rapey line in one of the songs? There's some of that stuff that's so woefully just kind of jars today's ears. Yeah, but to take Greece all the way back to the beginning. Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey in Chicago in 1971, once I started understanding the origin story of where this came from, it all kind of did fit into place. In 1970, 1971, you have a couple of guys who grew up in the 50s. And you have a lot of people going to the theater, even counterculture people in 1970, which is still very much the 60s. You have them going to the theater and you have a time of great tumult and unrest in America. 68, you have assassinations, you have the Vietnam Wars raging around. Summer of Love, 69. Summer of Love, society is in upheaval. And I guess, like many times like that, this thing comes out in a small, tiny theater attached to a bar in Chicago and had that youthful energy that you're talking about and had the references and the clothes and the character archetypes that would seem from a simpler time to those audiences.
0: On top of that, the the people who wrote it, Jim Jacobs and Warren yep. Casey, they were still young people. Yep. I was making this distinction in my mind when watching this because, like you said, the movie in 78 is looking back to in some ways a simpler time, but they in 70, 71, were like we are looking back to our own experiences and I think there's a big difference between nostalgia Mm -hmm. and appealing to memory. Oh, absolutely. You know, And I think that from them it was a much harsher just like they were still close enough to it that it was a a very different thing than than what it became.
1: I read the play I went so far as to go to samuelfrench.com, which is, this is probably your world, Chris. Uh-huh. Download some sort of play reader and purchase the play, which has all kinds of information that as a play goer, I'm not privy to right.
0: in terms of like... Presets, what's a preset? <laughs> well, it's like what you have to have prepared before the show starts. Like yeah. the props have like to be a in a shopping certain list. place. Presumably you've already shopped for all of it, like right. you have it, but it's like, okay, we have to make sure that offstage left is the knife or and sure. up on that shelf, there has to be that book that explodes.
1: So I read the play because I was kind of like, watch the movie, it's this crazy spectacle and you're just sort of like, what is going on? People in our generation, it's a thing. It means something to people. Come to find out it means something to a lot of people all over the world still today. But the origin story, it's sort of like comes out of this Chicago theater underground and immediately touches a nerve and becomes this thing that everybody has to go see. It has this vibrant, amazing cast of people, including Mary Lou Henner, who Mm -hmm. is fantastic in some of the DVD extras. A, number one, team Mary Lou Henner. She is fucking awesome and so likable and natural and normal for someone who has been a part of so many iconic pop cultural things. Yeah. Shout out to next week's episode. James L. Brooks wrote and directed Terms of Endearment, and we talked... Talk about Taxi. She was one of the stars of Taxi.
0: There's a lot of Taxi DNA in here.
1: There is. But anyway... It has this then journey, which I kind of vaguely knew like, oh, yeah, it was a Broadway show. But I just assumed, I guess, out of my, you know, 2018, 2019 bias that it went the other way. So it was like, oh, it was a big hit movie. And then they turned it into a Broadway oh, property. Yeah. Didn't really think about it as having had this really long run, not only on Broadway, but touring the country, productions right. all over the world that many of the cast members you're looking at in the movie in 1978 had roles in various touring companies including Jeff Conaway, who played Danny Danny. Zuko, as an actor... Is that a weird thing? Or in your mind, do you do the cruel math of fame, celebrity, and box office and understand that, of course, Travolta is going to get this part and not you?
0: I mean, it's both, I'm sure. You know, he could have turned it down for that very reason, but he also needs the job. Right. There was an anecdote that the director goes into. In the movie, they changed Grease Lightning from being Knicky's song to Danny's song. He even said, like, I'm sure that was tough for Jeff already having to cede the lead role and then the one plum bit having to lose mm-hmm. that as well. There are a couple people have sort of anecdotes in here where there's a refreshing, acknowledgement of some of those difficulties, specifically, you know, the show started in Chicago with the off loop non-union cast, even though they all got chances to audition for the Broadway thing.
1: I think that's Jim Jacobs who tells that story. He poignantly says he didn't know enough at the time to know how it all worked. And the two more experienced Broadway producers like, yeah, everyone who's in your show is going to get flown to New York. They're going to get to audition, but none of them
0: are going to get cast in the show. Jeff Conaway was, you know, while still a young guy, he was professional. There's something you just have to know going into the business. There's so many indignities that at some point we're like, well, I've got a supporter role in a major motion picture instead of the lead role in the Broadway production. But in his mind,
1: do you think he thought, I could do that as well as John? In the cruel math of stardom and box office and charisma and acting skill, dancing skill, singing skill, it's not really a fair contest. Travolta stands out head and shoulders above Jeff Conaway as a star. That shot in the beginning of the movie, the famous push in to Travolta leaning up against the high school, smoking a cigarette and turning to catch the eye of the camera. It's fucking incredible. He is peak Travolta. And Jeff Conaway just isn't that. And actually, Jeff Conaway is a perfect Kanicki. Perfect. Oh, perfect. Absolutely. Like he's, the Keniki Travolta thing, I mean, as poorly written as the dialogue scenes are, and they do have some fun and
0: chemistry together. When you do have such a good cast, and again, I think this goes into the youth and excitement in the same way that we talked about with Heathers, yeah. how the, the crew loved the project so much, everybody's yes. doing their best work. So too with this, everybody seems so excited to be here that you almost are thankful that some of the scenes are as spare as they are because you're allowed to simply watch the energy from Jeff Conaway and from John Travolta, from Stocker Channing. From all these people who just have, like, you get to watch that instead of looking for dialogue that isn't going to be as good as the the energy itself is. When
1: I watched it again last night, the people that are good in this, I really appreciated how good they are. The small moments for A Stockard Channing, for Travolta, when he's playing between the two personas, the real him when he's with Sandy, the fake him when he's with the guys. When he's between those two people in any scenes, he's really, really watchable. People have chimed in. We put on social media. and said, like, if you love this movie, tell us why, because I wanted to get a reaction. And it's overwhelming. I mean, it got a thousand. It's probably 1500 likes on the Facebook page, 400, 500 comments people of all different ages that's when I was like i was working on like what are my takes what am i you know <laughs> and i was like who fucking cares it's a cultural phenomenon that's lasted for 40 plus years because yeah. it hasn't shown any signs of going away and in fact not so long ago it was like what one of the more successful iterations of the now trendy live tv stage mm-hmm. musical thing so to unpack the things that don't make sense like olivia newton john The lack of explanation, why is she suddenly here at school? Like, doesn't matter. Yeah. You know? (laughs) In the stage show, she was Sandy Dombrowski. Yeah. And they did spend a summer together, but her father ended up getting transferred to the different town that the high school setting was in, and that was the explanation for her being there in the play, she's so far underwritten compared to even what we get from Olivia Newton-John. Is that right? Yeah. I was surprised at the fealty of the movie to much of what's in this this book from, I guess, the Broadway version, the Chicago version, it it morphed over the years. In the DVD between Randall Kleiser and the choreographer, who's kind of a very funny, dry interview presence. I don't know if you listened at all to any of the... uh, Yes. There was one part where... (laughs) In the Grease Lightning production number, she's sitting next to the guy who directed the movie, and she's like, I don't like this framing. <laughs> and you hear him kind of just go like, uh, uh. he's kind of shy, and he's not hes not an overpowering directorial voice in the DVD
0: stuff. He's like kind of quiet. and..." Well, I'm sure he got his own back when they sat together again for the DVD commentary of Grease 2, <laughs> which she directed. Wait, she directed it? Yeah. Wow, and this is you know obviously Patricia of, Birch is her name. Another interesting thing is Greece is one of those you know in the the few like like the Godfather movies or Grumpy Old Men where the sequel is actually better than the original. <laughs> That's a hot take, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. I've More, never seen Greece too. Have you? A bunch, like because in have you been in Greece? I have not been in Greece, but I did see an excellent revival at PS 261 a couple years ago. Was it a with revisionist? Or is this the one that your sister no, posted I, was in there. That your <laughs> I had a niece and nephew My nephew oh, played so Kanicki. PS261 isn't like a No, no, it's an actual public school oh, okay. That still I thought t- that was like a trendy yeah, no, no. Hudson Yards not a theatrical PS, Not like OBS. PS1 or, No, this was uh, This is on a nice auditorium Yes, yeah, so I heard your nephew was in there and Who he did Knicky. he play? He was Kinicky Crushed it And his rendition of Greased Lightning They were doing the book Where he sings Grease Lightning Great And actually I was very impressed With his acting And his uh, little sister A couple years younger Adelaide was also in the show She was in the ensemble and particularly had a, a featured bit in Born to Hand Jive.
1: It was interesting. I don't know if you scrolled through the Facebook comments. There's a few people who kind of dug in because I was asking, like, was it the song? Was it the nostalgia? Like, what was it? Most people, they just love it. They mm-hmm. don't really have to think about it. And that's kind of probably why it works for them. There were two funny ones. One woman was like, I love this movie so much, I'm watching it right now. <laughs> and I just happened to be online as she was putting it, I said, come on, proof. And posted a screenshot of her actually watching it as the post was coming uh-huh. up. Oh, which that's I great. was
0: hilarious. From the ones that I did read, as close to specific as they would get would be to say, I remember watching it with my a lot of
1: family friend, reminiscences.
0: Family. Yeah. It's so fun and joyous. I don't like musicals at all. So in some ways, I really was ready to tut it. But when watching it, I really was taken by the dance numbers in particular, because that's usually something I fast forward through, the energy and the verve of it, and they really did lean into the youth. Patricia Birch was, either she was saying or maybe somebody was saying about her, that they would kind of improvise dance steps and she'd be like, yeah, I like that, and let's keep that. She allowed that kind of youthful exuberance and things that were not set to be a part of it, and it, it It just feels that way. As the
1: director, Randall Kleisner, says in one of the DVD extras, it's in the beginning of the movie when some kids come bounding down the staircase and he goes, oh, there's D1 through 20, Dancers 1 through 20, which was her troupe of dancers that she brought with her onto the set. And they are the other students in all the high school scenes. Uh And if you watch the movie a second time or a hundredth time, (laughs) you'll see that they're not dancing per se in every sequence behind the main characters who are having conversations, but they're doing that movement dance thing where their movements have intent and it does give the movie that kind of movement of youth behind every scene. Mm -hmm. Like you, I'm not a big musicals guy either, but I was taken with the choreographer talking about how hard it is to get into a musical number in a movie and how that has to be more organic than the way it does on stage Mm -hmm. where you can just kind of stop and have this start. But in a movie you have cutting and you have like montages and you have different things going on that to, Introduce that we're now going to go into song is really difficult to do. Yeah. And she pointed out how seamless the transitions are in Greece from the dialogue to the songs. What do you think of
0: Travolta singing? I loved it. Is he a good singer? I'm, I am so. Not, I, I'm like... You had pointed out, well, on the DVD extras, there's that some footage from this uh, release of the DVD in 2002, yeah. which, again, P.S., didn't sound like that long ago until... 2002? They, like, oh, 2002? my 2002, God. Until they handed them it a DVD. and those people, They're like, wow, look at this. Look at this. Isn't this amazing? We're now on DVD. There's the guy from that 70s show behind John. <laughs> <laughs> that's our like Kirkwood Smith. I was Kirkwood wondering Smith. what he was doing there. <laughs> I guess they were like, you know, you're in a show that's about a certain time, and... That was the time when this movie was made. Like, sure, <laughs> you know, if there's open bar, I'll go. Fine, whatever. Yeah, whatever. They sing You're the One That I Want yes. uh, together at the age of whatever they are. And he does a pretty fucking good job getting good up job. on stage. That's a high song. Yeah. It was fascinating to watch him it as, was. as an older man tried to do it, oh. like what it takes to sing. And know. she's up there with her
1: professional touring band, yes. by the way. Like, she's a professional touring musician. Yeah. All the cast gets on stage, all the T-Birds. Yep. pink ladies on her side, all the girls on one side, all the guys on the other side. And the guys are kind of singing along, too. Uh, but Travolta's got to hit those notes, man. Yeah. He acquits himself
0: very well. The way he was back then in the original thing, it's so hard to differentiate between his star power versus yes. skill. Yes, yes. And, you know, I think any singer would tell you that being the most technically trained person doesn't mean you're necessarily the best singer. That there sure. has to be some element of acting and channeling yeah. emotion. And he is so He's good at that. He's a fucking triple that. threat. I, I was noticing so many, like, little... Weird quirks that he would mm-hmm. add, yes. like, particularly uh, with you, the one that I always say, like, it's electrifying. Yeah. And, like, the goofy voice, face yeah, the, he makes, the, the body movements. It made me think of Saturday Night Fever and how he is so comfortable with himself yes. that he allows himself to be potentially kind of goofy and it, it works. Let's play a little moment of that because I think at the very end of this song, he
1: has another physical moment, like the one you just mentioned, that I thought was so compelling, which is the end of Summer Nights. Mm-hmm. And he does that pose, pop yes. a thing.
0: It turned cold where it is So I told her we'd still be friends Then we made our true love love.
1: wonder what she is doing You know, Kleisner says, if you look at that moment again, and right before that last moment, the sun comes out uh-huh. and shines on, on Travolta's face at exactly the right time. And Kleisner is like, oh, I knew, I knew we had something yeah. incredible. And they do that moment in the 2002 DVD release party. I saw that. And the whole crowd goes freaking nuts. I mean, it's a breath in one yeah. song in a huge movie musical Every single person knows that moment no one thought that out I don't think it just it touches something that right. is I mean, resonant I don't they know could why.
0: only have thought it through in as much as recognizing here's a song about yeah. desire and it being pent up because of their separation because of their age and that breath is a bit of a release the funny thing about the movie it's not the
1: last step of the mass commercialization of the property because it's still being <laughs> commercialized now however before I kind of jumped into this I was like oh yeah Greece you know 1978 yeah I remember that what I didn't remember was that there had been a seven-year history prior to the movie coming out where this thing was a phenomenal property on Broadway. The movie is kind of the, not a bastardization because the movie, when we think of Greece, this is what we're thinking about. We're not really Mm -hmm. thinking about the Broadway show. We're not thinking about the Chicago show. It's just interesting that that's the thing that cut through for 40 years when there's actually like a purer and more like artistically weird origin story version of it that went on the stage for what is a really long
0: time in stage time. It's still the fifteenth longest running show in Broadway history. There've been a lot of Broadway shows in history, you know, and it was the longest for a couple of years. I think it was chorus line that knocked it off. It was a successful run and an amazing group of people that had been involved oh over its tell me tell run. me just list off some of the many people that have come through this thing. Oh, when it premiered on Broadway, it was Barry Bostwick. Sh- people should know from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Yes, Brad and Carol Demis. She was in Magic Garden. I did know that. At some point, Adrienne Barbeau played Rizzo. Yep. Uh, which is amazing. you think PG- she'd play Cha-Cha.
1: But Cha-Cha was not the bombshell she is in the movie in the stage show. Okay. That was one of
0: the character differences that didn't translate from the stage to the movie. In the commentary, somebody was saying, and you always have to do this, when you're doing an adaptation of something, you don't want it to just feel like you're filming the stage thing. Right. You want to make it feel more like a movie. Then, of course, they showed the, like, the car chase scene, which... Eh, I don't know. The it's, stunt in yeah, it's, huge air quotes. <laughs> yeah. He goes like <laughs> over like a pallet. Like that's it. That's the closest thing to a stunt. And then when, like we, a few flecks of mud go onto yeah, the lens. Verite. Yeah, man. That, like, you are there. But Peter Gallagher at some point was Zuko. Patrick Swayze. Swayze. Uh, opened it in London. Gear. Richard, Richard Gear. And then there was in the 1994. Sally Struthers. Broadway revival. I think it was the one that had Sally Struthers. Both Davy Jones and Mickey Dolenz. <laughs> no, and I'm Adrian Zemed, who ended up playing. Playing the Danny-ish part in Greece Two was actually in this 1994 company.
1: The Danny part in Greece Two is played by what's his name? It's Michelle Pfeiffer mm-hmm. and. The other
0: guy. There is like a T-birds thing, and the like the leader of the T-birds is Adrian Zemed But you, I know what you're. He's got a funny name, going Maxwell Coffee. Maxwell Caulfield, yes.
1: So I stayed up late last night watching this bizarre and fantastic documentary about one of the producers of Greece, whose name is Alan Carr. He was a very flamboyant producer in Hollywood in the '70s, in the '80s, whose claim to fame was getting involved with the Stigwood organization and famously planned like this phenomenal premiere party that I think was in the subway. I can't remember what it was, but he did something for Stigwood. He was just a big empresario. He threw an amazing party. So Stigwood gave him a greater piece of work to do on Greece, and you hear his name mentioned a lot by the director and a lot by Patricia Birch. So as a producer, he was extremely involved in a a lot of the look and a lot of what was going on. And he's a very complicated guy who died, unfortunately, somewhat young, had a lot of personal issues, which this documentary I watched went into great detail about. But Alan Carr's fingerprints are all over the movie Grease, and unfortunately, all over the subsequent bastardization of Grease 2 and some other unfortunate choices, which as he desperately tried to follow up the insane success of Grease, he then did Can't Stop the Music, the pseudo-autobiography of the village people, directed by... Nancy Walker. She was Ida Morgenstern, obviously, on on Rhoda. She directed the Village People movie because she was like really close friends with Alan Carr, who idolized the strange subset of Hollywood figures that were iconic from an earlier era. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, all of the people populating the older person roles in Greece, the built-in nostalgia for the 50s for people like Sid Caesar, Fanny Flagg, Eve Arden, that's all Alan Carr. Understanding that for the older folks going who grew up in the era, that's a whole other layer of the movie that they're going to be into. And for the kids, they don't really care. Those are just people playing old people.
0: <laughs> What's are out-of-the-leather jackets? They're like, who cares? It <laughs> doesn't matter who any of those people are. Though, these were real pros. Like, I thought Eve Arden oh, yes. as the principal and um, Dodie Goodman. Dodie Goodman is great. Eve Arden and Dodie Goodman is sort of a double act as the principal yes. and assistant principal. A lot of those jokes are friggin' corny. But and they make yet, them work. They make them work. And it's really that professionalism of... of how about Alice I mean, Ghostly? What doing. Oh, I love Alice Ghostly! How great is Alice what Ghostly? what a great character! I had forgotten. So good, uh, <laughs> Alice Ghostly. She's like really encouraging She's everybody encouraging. to commit <laughs> crime, like a lot. Full cast and crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two different Guys on a Bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily
1: this documentary is called The Fabulous Alan Carr. It's available on Amazon Prime. It's sad in a way because he was one of those people who found his way to Hollywood and took so much of his identity through fame in an industry that you're only as good as your last thing. And unfortunately, after this, when he was king of the hill, he had a pretty rough string of failures and it culminated, which I did not know. He's the guy who did the famous Rob Lowe Snow White disastrous Oscars of 1989, which everyone's Sites as the yeah. first Oscar debacle of epic proportions. Fascinating to see how bad an idea this was and how mega staged it was in the auditorium that night. Yeah. It is colossally over the top and insane. And it's totally from the mind of Alan Carr. He's bringing out all these doddering old, old, old Hollywood figures. The conceit is like Snow White wakes up in Hollywood and meets old Hollywood and then gets introduced to new Hollywood as represented by Roblo. And then they, of course, sing Proud Mary. That kind of destroyed him in Hollywood forever until his second act was he's the guy that brought La to Broadway. Oh, and no And brought kidding. like Harvey Firestein in and had a big late career triumph with that. You can't really watch Grease without understanding that Alan Carr's fingerprints are all over it. And if you do get the excellent DVD that's out now or that came out, it's the 40th anniversary DVD that has a whole bunch of extras on it. You can see a little bit of Alan Carr interviewed; He's a little out of it, as many people are in the DVD extras. Jeff Conaway, as we know, passed away tragically. But, you know, Alan Carr had lifelong struggles with drugs and alcohol. Conaway did. There's some people looking a little worse for wear in a few of the extras. This is one of the four songs added for the movie, and this was written by Olivia Newton-John's personal songwriter, John Farrar. He was the songwriter who wrote, You're the One That I Want, hopelessly devoted to you, and some other treacly Olivia Newton-John hits. stop there. I mean, I could keep going. And people listening want this song to keep yeah. going. Yeah, well, they have their own iTunes account. Anyway, that song caused a little moment for Mr. Travolta. Randall Kleisner says, geez, you know, Olivier, a solo. And, uh, you know, where's mine? He didn't have any solo song in the entire movie. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, wow. And that's where they came up with the bizarre Sandy. Bizarre only for the swing set that apparently is in
0: front of the movie screen in the drive-in. That's That's very common in the 50s. You're watching The Blob. You let your kids play on the swing. Here's a little... working yeah, really, yeah, really hard yeah. when he's singing that. I don't probably, know if it's because yeah. he's sitting setup? or what. It's pretty good. Well, he's probably ashamed of himself. I asked for a solo. Yeah. This yeah, is okay, what they give me. Okay, you want a me? solo, motherfucker? Yeah. Then I have to compete with an <laughs> so acrobatic hot
1: dog. You've been to the movies recently and seen that same hot dog animation. I've seen that. They use that. Are they using it now as like a commentary on everyone remembers it from
0: Greece? Oh, well, I think. I mean, I think it existed. But it's more like period specific. No, I
1: know. But I'm just wondering: is is that the reason why I see it when I go to the movies now? Is it like a referential movie
0: going thing? Yes. You think? I think you so. Think yeah. They're like we're showing you this because you remember it from Greece. It's like kitschy. I think like movie people do tend to like classics and sort of looking back and the nostalgia element. I just don't think that it's directly attached to Greece. Well, Travolta's in this movie because
1: he had famously signed a three-picture deal with Robert Stigwood and the Robert Stigwood organization. The first one, of course, being Saturday Night Fever. I believe this was the second one. Mm -hmm. And the third film was the bizarre moment-by-moment with Lily Tomlin, also known as Von Ogenblick zu Ogenblick. Yeah. Okay, that's... Now you you know what we're talking about.
0: (laughs) This is is such an interesting contrast with Saturday Night Fever. Totally. The characters have so much similarities, but one is played straight and one is played for comedy or more mm-hmm. theatrical, yes. the musical thing. It is fantastic to see the overlap, the ticks that make him such an amazing performer, such a good actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same sorts of things just translated through a different lens. It's it a great example
1: of what a star is, is that you can put him in one thing or another and it doesn't really matter. In this era, John Travolta is holding your eye and is a magnetic presence. People in the extras are talking about, he's not someone who was acting charming. He's not someone who had to act sexy. It makes you wonder, given the Stigwood organization and sort of the early packaging that was going on in terms of like, hey, I represent the BGS Bee- and I've signed John Travolta. Like, what can I stuff these assets into that will produce filmed entertainment? For Sunday Fever, did John Badham just sort of like surreptitiously make a great film when Stigwood would have been totally happy with disco grease? You know what I mean? Like, you mm-hmm never get the sense in any of the commentary that like Stigwood was concerned about the quality of anything that was being made It was just more about like here are the elements get them out and the
0: punters will line up and pay their tickets for for years I don't think anybody can be so purely cynical like oh, he must have I've, liked John Battam you, you haven't spent a lot of time with me then have you <laughs> But I'm sure he like that would, you know, he recognized something in the project that, yes, he was like, this will show off my client. It'll capture a trend. Yeah. I'm sure he was familiar with the guy's work. You know, he didn't say, just get some guy in the director's chair. No matter how cynical you are, if you want something to succeed, you do take some interest in trying to make it good enough. Perhaps. Doesn't always work. No, I'm not not ascribing any ill
1: intent to Stigwood. I'm giving credit to John Badham, who figured out how to actually make a pretty compelling film. Obviously, what then Stigwood recognized as a formula. It's like, okay, what else can we do this with? Ah, 50s rock and roll music. I think the Broadway show aspect of Grease lends it this quality that this movie has where you're kind of, I don't know, you're kind of waiting for the numbers. Like Mm -hmm. if they did an edit that just sort of like had all the big musical dance numbers back to back to back, like I would probably watch that more than I would watch the movie again. Yeah, like I'm not really in it for the dialogue or the one liners, which are all pretty weak. I'm in it for the two leads and I'm in it for the iconic songs and less so for the production numbers, which, you know, they're OK. I'm not wowed by them, except I know they're a thing. Mm-hmm. It's like the Campbell Soup version of musical staging of Yesteryear.
0: Right. Which, of course, Greece is going through that process the whole time. Even the translation from Chicago to Off-Broadway, somebody said in in one of the DVD extras, it went from being three quarters book, one quarter music to the exact opposite. Right. Which you can understand from a producer's point of view. What they recognized was not the gritty uh, (laughs) analysis of working class culture in Chicago. No, they're like, people will remember this style of song. People like this style of music. Mm -hmm. And so they emphasize that and cut away some of the things that would make it potentially let's say, potentially offensive or also potentially deeper. And then to go one step further from the Broadway musical to the movie, they wanted to make it even more accessible, which to my mind is what makes it all the more fascinating that there was some nugget or kernel in there that traveled through all of those iterations mm-hmm. that still is moving because I like the corny one-liners just to watch all of these old bros deliver them. But, but yeah, Sid Caesar, uh, I mean, like watch like you know, Sid He's Caesar. hilarious.
1: When the film starts, you're like listening to all of these Chicago accents and you're so clearly in Los Angeles, California... It's sort of jarring at first, but there's no other reference really to location.
0: I assumed at some point somebody was going to say something about Los Angeles. It's just one of the things that didn't matter. It's the
1: otherworldliness of the setting in a way. Like, it's not actually the 50s. Someone pointed out yesterday on Facebook, I love 50s music. I hate lame 70s versions of 50s music. The songs in here are not true to the Mm -hmm. actual style of 50s music. I'm not even talking about the Barry Gibbs sort of disco intro song. It's just broad. Broadway show tune music, which fits the milieu that we're in. It's not early rock and roll for a whole thing that started like, hey, there's never been a rock and roll musical on Broadway. It's not rock and roll, guys. Yeah. This is not a true 50s experience.
0: It became a nostalgia thing even by yeah. the time it gets to the screen. I guess the, the one thing about the music, when they had the dance and Sean playing Johnny Casino yes. and The Gamblers, they were just singing like known songs, but just changing the lyrics, right? Like, <laughs> like instead of Let's Go to the Hop, it yeah. was like, like let's stay out let's off go 10 put on socks yeah yeah
1: so. Let's go, well, you know, hey, Chris, you don't want to spend a lot of money licensing those song rights. So. Although,
0: I was like, but that is the tune. <laughs> like, you gotta license that. Are the lyrics that much more
1: expensive? In the scene where Rizzo is pregnant, which is one of the scenes I've mentioned before where an actor of the caliber of Stocker Channing is really worthwhile, the scenes surrounding her pregnancy and her talking with Kaniki about the pregnancy and denying that he's the father, those are all played really, really well with really, really good acting from Stockard Channing. But when Manoff is coming, comforting her, she offers as like a similar experience that she caught... Vince Fontaine. Vince Fontaine putting aspirin in my Coke, which is like a roofie joke. This hints a little bit at what the surviving writer, because Warren Casey passed away, Jim Jacobs, I think is the one who says, you know, when they first did it, it was really edgy and pushing the envelope because you had teen pregnancy. You had... Zip guns and gang violence and drug use and drinking and all this kind of stuff. It was edgy for the time. Maybe that's a remnant of that. There's a lot of
0: jarring post Me Too stuff. Not just with Vince Fontaine. Even the way that Danny treats Sandy at the drive-in. We played only songs so far. I was gonna play a little of this scene,
1: which is Danny and Sandy at the drive-in. Oh, well, I'm gonna get a cold. Oh no, no. This is probably a little drive-in dust. That's all.
0: Was it true? Could space monsters mate with Earth women? See the startling answer in the shocker of them all.
1: Sandy! Oh Sandy! Danny, what are you doing? Get oh off... Sandy! Don't worry about it. Nobody's watching. Sandy, get off! Why? Sandy, what's the matter with you?
0: I, I, I thought it meant something to you! Not oh. To you! You think I'm gonna stay here with you in this this wagon? You can take this piece of tin?
1: Sandy, you just can't walk out of a drive-in. It's one of the few good one-liners. You can't just walk well, out no, of a no, drive-in.
0: <laughs> it's a good scene. that's played really well between the two of them, but it's still jarring. When he's putting the moves on her, putting his arm around the shoulder and going to Is reach. that what the kids call it today, Chris? That is what they, it's still, it's one of those Put in bits the moves. of slang, like the word cool. Is that it like, like Netflix and chill? It's, yes, exactly. And at the same time with the, the trailer for some movie when it's talking about aliens yes. could mate with Earth women. <laughs> I thought that parallel was pretty well done.
1: Part of the DNA of the way it's working on the minds of people that grew up in the 50s is the movie references, in addition to the old stars that are in there, all of the pop cultural stuff, the brush up, brush up, brush up, which I actually just (laughs) was saying that to my daughter like last week as she was brushing her teeth, but not even knowing where do I have this in my (laughs) mind from until I watched this again for the first time. And I couldn't remember. I was like, oh. Is that a commercial that I, that they were still playing in the seventies mm-hmm. that I'm remembering from? Or no, this is where I'm remembering here. it from. And also shout out DD Khan. Amazing. Yeah. Still working today. Travolta, obviously, is great. Stocker Channing is
0: great. Olivia and jonathan is great. I was, so I want to ask what your opinion of Olivia. I loved Olivia. her. I think she's fantastic. I think she's perfect in this. Besides yeah. having a beautiful voice, besides being beautiful and sort of looking right, there's something technically above and more, mm-hmm. something that makes her a star that is yes. different from everybody else. And yes, it's nuts that they like, forget it, we're just going to use this Australian woman. <laughs> we're not going to take her accent. After seeing it a bunch of times, yeah, I wonder maybe what her dad did that they transferred uh, on a whim <laughs> to California slash. Chicago. Yeah. But I don't really After care vacationing that vacationing there for the summer. He was just going through a series of interviews. Well,
1: she also has a decency and kind of a gravitas to her that no one else in the movie has. The turn at the end, even, which is so silly to look at on paper or even contemplate the way it's visually represented, where he's all of a sudden in this Letterman sweater and she's the bad girl. Everything that we're talking about her and why she works is embodied in the anecdote of how she came to be cast in the movie when Stigwood and Alan Carr said, well, we've got Olivia and John, we've got to have her in this movie. She asked to screen test, right. which is opposite of how it would usually go, where the producers would be side-eyeing this person who they don't think can do this job would be making them screen test in order to convince themselves it's a worthwhile risk. This was the other way around. She said, I insist on screen testing. I think she had had a misstep in her career just before this, and she okay. didn't want to repeat that. And so she was like, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. So let's try and do a screen
0: test. And if we all agree that I can do it, I'll do it. It's that same impulse, that maturity in her to want to make sure that she herself is ready. I think that's that same quality and steadfastness that she brings to Sandy. Yeah. Because like you said, she seems very decent. Actually, I'd I'd completely forgotten the scene where she talks to Rizzo in the midst of the pregnancy scare. Mm -hmm. And she's like, there are a lot of these little nice nuggets of like genuine friendship in there amongst all the, the yes. tumult of what's going on between them. The fact that she acknowledges, like, I know we haven't really been the closest, yeah, but, like, that sounds tough. Mm-hmm. W- you know, whatever I can do to help. The, my recitation of it makes it sound corny, but it does not come across that way because she inhabits that character.
1: Oh, hello, Riz. Are you going to Thunder Road?
0: Not a chance.
1: I've got to go. I have to talk to Danny. Unless you've got wheels and a motor, he will not know you're alive. Listen, Riz, I know that we haven't been the best of friends, but if there's anything I can do... Oh, I can take care of myself and anybody else who comes along. You think I don't know what people are saying about me? Hey.
0: Thanks. And, you know, talking about her transformation in the end, I also was really struck by her watching the Thunder Road scene. Mm -hmm. She's away from everybody else. She does a reprise of Sandra Dee, a a sort of mournful version of it, Mm -hmm. which to me let's not pretend that there's more thematic resonance in the movie than there is, but I really was struck by her being set apart, kind of by choice, mm-hmm. and you can look at this movie as as sexist in the way that she transforms or as a conformity machine, mm-hmm. which is the 50s. It's is like, instead now, of just it?
1: owning who you are, she transforms into something she probably isn't in order to get the affection and attention of someone who has transformed himself. Well, Everybody's to be,
0: transformed everybody, to try to no be one seven, knows who they to are. sort of meet on, on a level. Yeah. But I, I did think when she was seeing that. Sandra almost like realizing like oh my gosh I have been taking myself too seriously being too much right. of a stick in the mud you thought about this about yourself no No, of of her, (laughs) the realization that she comes to, and then she's like, I want to be friends with these people. I want to be experiencing the same youth that Frenchie and Marty and Rizzo are, with its attendant risks. Made me look at everything differently in the last song, even when she looks to them for guidance in how to throw her cigarette down and and crush it out. It's wanting to be one of them and to enjoy the same things that they are enjoying.
1: Well, um, since you were so moved, I'll play a little of the Look at Me, I'm Sandra D reprise. A way I could be. Could you help me? Of course. Can I come over to your place? Sure, come on.
0: Let me evolve. Wow. Everybody's evolving. That's it's also all that
1: youth is about. occurs to me the only scene where the music is not whatever the term is for, like, they're actually singing it on screen. She's oh, not what? singing that mm-hmm. there. She it's, it's in her mind. Yeah. And I think that's the only time in the movie where someone isn't actually mouthing the lyrics. I noticed that. Before we get into You're the One That I Want, which I want to spend, like, an hour and a half dissecting, any other movie aspects or moments that you had in your notes? Dennis
0: Stewart, who plays oh, great. Bam- that face of his fantastic. Is so he's fantastic. And he is so right for So Dennis Stewart role. plays crater face as he's known. I, I remember him so vividly. And I sort of almost think that I see him everywhere, even though he, he did die relatively he's young. A tragic,
1: he's, I think he died of AIDS.
0: He did die he was, of AIDS. Yeah, and yes. Okay. And I think he was a gay actor. I, yeah. from what I read, it sounded like he was out and you yes. know, relatively out in 19, you
1: know, once you watch the doc about Alan Carr, you'll never be able to view Greece without having this in your mind because Paul Rudnick, very funny writer, is in this documentary. He broke the glass shield that was between me and my understanding of what Greece is. Uh He like pointed out scene after scene after scene that it is this gay fantasy seen through Alan Carr's eyes and the use of actors like Dennis Stewart and all this gay iconography. It's writ large on the screen and the looks of the guys and all this kind of stuff they use in the documentary. They cut to a bunch of other examples of things. And you're like, oh God, yes, that's, exactly what's Uh going on here on screen. And the very funny example is Alan Carr was very out and very flamboyant, but he was also extremely corpulent. He was known as Caftans Courageous, (laughs) was his was the evil nickname bestowed upon him because he had a lot of detractors in Hollywood. Caftans Courageous because he wore caftans. Right. Because he struggled with his weight his whole life. One guy says, you know, I knew him for 30 years. He was not a sexual being, but he did like to watch. He was his favorite thing was to watch Young young men wrestle and he's like you can see this in greece actually there's a scene between sid caesar and john travolto in the background there are two shirtless well muscled young men wrestling on a mat and he was like That's Alan Carr. (laughs) That has no reason for being there. It's like, all right,
0: the scene looks good. Let's go already shoot. He's like, one suggestion. That sounds a little (laughs) sparse. Uh,
1: Which is kind of interesting. But Dennis Stewart is part of what's referenced there because he was kind of a, I guess, an an iconic sort of
0: look that he had. He looked very striking. exactly. And he wore that greaser look in a way that was not as cartoonish as the rest of them. You know, Travolta, like, it's not that I don't buy it, but there's something so star quality about it that it seems Hollywood. No, this guy looks like,
1: he looks like, like a switchblade carrying a greaser. So yes. Oh, another one, Nurse Wilkins, uh, played by Fanny Flag. Yes. Uh, I'm not falling for your trick, Chris, where when you don't know something, you don't know anything about something, you allow silence. No, the silence indicates like, I thought you had something to say about Fanny Flag. Oh, is that called, is that what listening is? (laughs) Interesting. Okay, all this time. You'll get it. see in my mind, <laughs> it's not a this power is how, game. In my mind, when you're silent, it's because you don't know something.
0: It does happen every now and again, <laughs> but that's usually in an answer to a direct question as opposed to and Fanny Flag. Well then I thought,
1: yeah, you'd chime in and fill in all the interesting
0: <laughs> sorry, filmography and really. I was a lover of Harper Valley PTA. Sure. But other than that, uh, re- I do remember actually liking her in Greece though. For her one line, I think. One line, yeah.
1: She's one of the actors that's in here for the nostalgia of the earlier Mm -hmm. time. She went on and wrote Fried Green Tomatoes, which is pretty cool as an accomplishment. That's awesome. Um, She wrote the novel and um, the screenplay. I don't know. Is that a weepy? How would you categorize it? I
0: haven't seen it. Uh,
1: No, you're right. That's how I know you don't know what you're talking about. When you say (laughs) I haven't seen it. Your silence is merely listening. Okay. See this, I'm learning. I'm still going to be able to include this in my future work. It's
0: a work in progress, man. We have the rest of our lives to work all this We don't have an end date. Well, the description is a housewife who is unhappy with her life befriends an old lady in a nursing home and is enthralled by the tales she tells of people she used to know. I don't know. That sounds like a weepy to me. Does it? Yeah. I mean, yes, there's no that mention like of a, death. That sounds like a white southern lady movie to me. Uh yeah, I guess right. It's like wild green tomatoes. Old- they certainly that's not a Michigan thing full and crew is brought to you by out of jack's mind a new comedy short video series from jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the sony pictures feature film space station 76 and current recurring guest on grace and frankie and z nation out of jack's mind like and follow at chuckler comedy on facebook or chuckler.com chuckler original comedy delivered daily
1: yeah, there's a lot of interesting background people in
0: Greece. Well, my um, favorite was Lorenzo Lamas. <laughs> Lorenzo Lamas, weird. When I saw that he was on there, I was like, "Who is this character?" So I kept looking around <laughs> at, until I finally went, "Oh, maybe his role was cut." No, nope. reading somewhere. His first ever he, movie role that he was dyed blonde. They dyed his hair and played the uh, football club, and he was. Very. I thought he was very funny. He's, He's very funny. Good.
1: He doesn't actually speak, but he mouths a line yeah. of dialogue. Is that a way to avoid like a SAG contract? Is that Stigwood being
0: like, <laughs> if you don't if you don't vocally utter the words, does that not count? You know that does happen on like commercials or back when they were more soap pop- operas. Yeah. If you were an under five, they paid you differently. What's you an had, under five? If you had five lines or fewer, but we're an actor as opposed to an extra, you get a certain pay. Okay. If you were six lines or above. Be a day player or you know, so so it would be a difference. So yeah, Lorenzo Lama's bizarre and huge, lumberingly huge.
1: Yeah. Didi Khan, by the way, is married to David Shire, who is one of my favorite film composers. Oh, yeah. Um, I was reminded of this by our loyal listener, R. F. Brown. I posted on Instagram a few months back when I happened to be watching the original taking of Pelham Mm 123. It's got a freaking phenomenal phenomenal theme song hmm. of the, of its era uh, composed by David Shire who is Mr. D.D. Khan, and he was previously married to Talia Shire. That's why Talia Shire is known as Talia Shire. He also did the music for Zodiac which is one of my favorite films. All the President's Men with great tense political yeah. thriller score. And D.D. Khan is such a funny and fun presence and just sort of is who she is on camera. She's one of those actors who's like, you know, kind of what you see is what you get but she's so lovably perfectly herself that
0: it just completely works. And she's a fantastic Frenchie. Like Dennis Stewart, I feel like I've seen her everywhere. Not that doesn't. But it's like, it's really just this role. is sort of so <laughs> expansive. Well, and that, then the TV work. Yeah, and I'm sure I have seen some, but I think even that I'd probably just download this performance into my mind. Uh, one of the few who returned for Grease 2. Yes, along with Dennis Stewart. Yep, I mean more power to him. You know? Yeah. Listen, a job's a job. If there's one thing we've learned doing this podcast. Absolutely. Uh, what's your favorite song from Greece? I guess it is uh, You're the One That I Want. I find their performances, that chorus of, you know, like the mm-hmm. going into that high register and sort of like, I don't know if you'd call that belting it or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, like, I enjoy listening to that. And I think everybody dancing around in that setting. Hey, Zuko! You hey, gotta be kidding man! Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. hey, hey, what is this,
1: Halloween? Where did you? Why this a sweat, huh? My tools were out <laughs> stealing hubcaps on would track. How do you like
0: that? <laughs> I can't believe it. Danny Zuko turned jock? That's right, it you doing, deserting us? Well, you guys can't follow leader all your
1: lives, can you? Oh, come on, guys. You know you mean a lot to me. It's just as Sandy does,
0: too. And I- I'm going to do anything I can to get her. that's right. <laughs> play
1: that's another John Farrar song. It is just a genetically engineered earworm of the highest order. I got into listening to this song last night. I was like a zombie. I was up till two in the morning last night going down the Grease rabbit hole here. I was watching the Alan Carr documentary. I was watching some other features. And then I had my headphones on and I listened to this song and to the Grease theme song. Like, uh, I'm not exaggerating, 20 or 30 times because I was like, what is going on in this song that makes it so insanely listenable? What you were talking about before about the way their voices go together at the high parts yeah it's almost like there's seven other people singing on there which i'm not really sure there are maybe they did some overdubs and everything but it's really just the combination of his high voice and her high voice at the chorus and this is the reason you have olivia newton john in the movie we were making fun of her transformation and kind of her forsaking her true self. But when you watch this, it feels like she's genuinely this person as yeah. well. You were mentioning the Travolta thing before the electrifying part. We talk about like, oh, but I want to be an actor. What, is, what the hell skill is it to be able to do what he did there, which he is
0: freaking able to do yep. better than most people could do it. It's <laughs> easy to forget, certainly for me, that part of acting like the, is the performative element yeah. and like the fun these days. Yeah. Everybody takes an improv class and what everybody yeah. says like, the good thing about improv is like, you just sort of, <laughs> (laughs) You let go of a lot of things and you're just sort of able to react. And his sort of lack of self-consciousness that allows him to do that goofy thing and fall on the ground. It's It's fantastic. It's it's like
1: people tell you to meditate. It's like, just relax. Just clear your mind, man. Just stop thinking. You know, it's like, oh, just go in your improv class and, you know, don't worry about what you're doing and be totally free. Oh, sure.
0: Yeah, just you know, be free.
1: Just be free. Just be free in yeah. front of 400 people on a football field uh, at the most important song of the movie. And
0: look in the characters themselves. I mean, this is this is this moment. They're about to leave school, leave yes. this, what everything that they've known. When he says, and I'm losing control, and he takes yeah. off the Letterman jacket yeah. because what does it mean to be a high school athlete? It's about discipline and control. Win. Win, yeah, win. It's, yes, and it's getting past that yes. is something that you have to do. Again, everybody, to a greater or lesser extent. So like in the ahead. chorus, when they're going like, you're the one that I want, and then
1: it's doubled, you're the one that I want. It's like, there's something else going on. The who, who, who's, it's a confection but it's pop genius. The line was played actually by a guy who was in Toto, and it's an incredible line. I, I know it's as silly to talk about the quality of the playing of the songs as it is to talk about the quality of much of the acting in the movie itself. However, both in the Barry Gibbs song and in You're the One That I Want, I think they're both like really superlative pop songs that have real worthy things to listen to. In the theme song to Greece, the guitar is played by Peter Frampton, and it's not a wailing guitar solo Peter Frampton the way we think of him. It's really a rhythm guitar part, but it's played really, really well, and it's uh-huh. worth listening to for that. And this song is just worth listening to. <laughs> I don't know, man. The more
0: you listen to it, the more is in there. God, it's so good. This is a movie musical based on a kind of music, because it's not purely anything, especially this yeah. song. It's not like a Broadway musical song. It no. is something pop-ish, but it yeah. also does point backward to, let's say, doo-wop. A little like bit. Something about yeah. that. But it isn't exactly that, and it's not exactly a musical song. It's yeah. something just so perfectly for this.
1: Yeah. Listen, we've done two Travoltas. I mean, I was kind of thinking like, you know, in the podcast, should we... Should we decide like what the next movie is based on some through line that we're going through here? Like, in other words, we did Saturday Night Fever, iconic Travolta. We did this iconic Travolta. I mean, the next iconic Travolta also ties in with the movie that we've recorded, but not yet released in terms of terms of endearment, which is Travolta and Deborah Winger in Urban Cowboy, which is cited as the third kind of the third Travolta era defining role and in yet another completely different persona for him than in these two movies. I don't know. I don't know if a through line makes sense because you know, I could also do life on the line. (laughs) (laughs) However, in the podcast, we're having a lot of success doing movies that people really emotionally connect to. And I think we should stay there. Even urban cowboy. I don't know that it has that. It's different. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah. Anyway, Chris, would you like to move on to this week in TV Guide? Yes. Hmm, what's on TV? I have a philosophical question from this week's TV Guide, Chris, Great. from 1980. You've come to just the right man. You're familiar with the concept of Gilligan's Island. Yes. Okay? They're cast away. They can't get off the island. Right. Well, you can watch back-to-back episodes starting at 4 p.m. in 1980, and both involve contradictions to the very premise of the show. The first one is obviously a Beatles ripoff. The mop-topped mosquitoes arrive on the island seeking refuge from their fans. Well, if someone can arrive on the island, why don't they just take everyone with them when they go?
0: I I will tell you, because the mosquitoes were assholes. And they wait, do you left know this them behind. I remember, yeah. Wait, so the mosquitos were like jerks. It's not that they were jerks, but the fact that they like they were soaked and left. Stars. Yeah, they they left. Okay. I think if I'm remembering it right, I because the castaways put on a show trying to impress them. They were like, "Ugh, we don't need the competition of like another band or something like that."
1: Oh, and so they just bailed. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, there's another one. Marianne's crushed when she learns her boyfriend is getting married.
0: Well, how the hell does she learn?
1: How the hell does she learn her boyfriend is getting married if she's on a freaking island? Like what
0: is it? She got a postcard? Like that I don't remember. Uh, And yeah, I could see how that would be crushing, especially when it's like, oh, (laughs) if only that bottle that washed up on shore contained like a homing beacon or something so I could get (laughs) off this island. I like to think of the writers are sort of trapped.
1: What the fuck do we do now? As you can tell, we're getting here in 1980. It's probably been on the air for five or six years, and they are at bottom of the barrel. This is another good one. Now, the Andy Griffith show, and Mm -hmm. it's an old country bumpkin type show. Apparently, this is like a very special Andy (laughs) Griffith. Tempers flare when Barney reopens a long forgotten assault case.
0: Is that what you go to Andy Griffith for? No, heavy. Jeez. It's like, yeah. Don will give you one episode as a backdoor project? How much do you want to direct- bet he directed that episode? That is an actor who is like, you know, I can do more. He's like, what if we do a spinoff? If I play, let's say, uh, an L.A. private eye. <laughs> <laughs> Just hear me out. He leaves Mayberry, and he goes, and he, and he has a real tough journey. Barn, that he- case is colder <laughs> than an old horse's rooting
1: tutor. You better leave that one alone. I think I can get something out of it, Andy. <laughs> I'm gonna go figure it out. Forget it, Barney. It's Chinatown. (laughs) I'm obsessed with some of these shows that obviously were things that I'd never even, like, I've heard of a lot of TV shows from the 70s and the 80s, but I never heard of Phil and Mickey. Meet Mickey, hero of the great Russian sport, Escaping. (laughs) He's in love with pretty Phil, in hot water with her father, and hilariously in the dark over the crazy American way of life. Starring Rick Lohman, Murphy Cross, Larry Haynes, Ray Allen, and Jack Dodson. Never heard of any of those people. And Phil is a female, see, P-H-Y-L. You can see the hilarity that would ensue, probably name confusion. Anyway. What a country! What, <laughs> I mean, is... what kind of decadent country is this? Maybe Yakov Smirnoff turned down that role. Phil is a female American track star who achieves romantic detente with Mickey a Russian competitor who defects from the motherland. Anyway, this is a big thing. The Olympics were going on. So at eight o'clock, we have the golden moment, which is an Olympics love story. Matt, maybe you could feather in a little light Olympics theme as I read you this dramatic description. (laughs) The Olympics, where records are shattered and hearts are broken, where winning and losing and loving are more than a game. Starring Stephanie Zimbalist, David Keith, Richard Lawson, not Dawson, Lawson, Jack Palance, James Earl Jones, the ever dramatic Ed McMahon, Merlin Olsen, Victor French, Nancy Marchand, and special appearances people. Get ready. You won't believe what will happen to them 40 years later. Bruce Jenner and O.J. Simpson. I think loving is not a
0: game. In We're winning any and losing
1: and loving. Uh, more than a game. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Chris, because one of the other shocking shows that is on that night, starring one of my favorite actors, Max Gale from Barney Miller, uh-huh. this is called Fun and Games. She has her eye on a promotion. Her boss has his eye on her. If she wants the new job, she'll have to let him sleep with her. Whoa! Can she fight him? Or must she pretend it's just Fun and Games? That's a dramatic take on the Me Too hostile work environment in 1980. Wow! So you know, you guys can laugh all you want about the entertainment industry, but we've been pioneering discussions of important things since at least 1980.
0: Yeah, I mean, also creating the problems that are the important things. (laughs) Well, sure. I mean, (laughs) yeah. Anyway, that's
1: this week in TV Guide. Well, fantastic. Would you like to move on to rants and raves? Yes.
0: I don't have any. You have none. No. Well. I hope you're comfortable. I went to see two Sam Mendes-directed plays this week, both of which were three-plus hours. One was called The Lehman Trilogy, about the history of Lehman Brothers, three actual brothers coming from Bavaria, who started a clothing company that then turned into what it turned into and goes all the way to its fall. And it was an amazing production. And when you talk about acting, three guys play all of these characters over 150 some odd years. The effortlessness with which they go between the different characters and what little they do to convey so much, it is just like an astounding piece of theater and a really fascinating play. We all know Banks are evil, so it was interesting to see something that at least started and gave a positive take from where it had come from, which was a family business of these people trying to make their way in America, it really did trace the way that, in a good way, the organization changed and innovated along with America. But uh, and then the bad sides of that as well, which of course lead to the collapse. It's probably closed by the time you'll hear this, but it's, uh, it's like amazing. most things. Chris likes. I look,
1: <laughs> but I haven't forgiven him for divorcing Kate Winslet in 2011, so I, I can't get on the same. <laughs> with this. It's, it's not enough. I'd forgive him. That's, that's th- not enough to bring me. three hours Put her about, back le- on the market. Three hours about Lehman Brothers is not enough to bring me back to the trough. <laughs> okay, yeah. What was the other as show? Exciting as that's. Is that the is that the crowd pleasing show that you saw or uh, the esoteric one? Well,
0: I, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> then, then last night I saw the Ferryman, which Sam Mendes also Ooh. directed. He directed that too. That uh, I yeah. would like to see, uh, and it's it's fantastic. Who's uh, in that? Uh, the biggest name would be Brian Darcy James. They did have a cast change recently, and he's the new lead. I think it had been Patty Considine. Uh, but I it's love a beautiful Patty show. Considine. I do too. But it's a beautiful show okay. by Jez Butterworth, who had written uh, Jerusalem. Love that. Let's move on to
1: headlines.
0: Headlines. my first one for you chris
1: i know you're going to love this is right in my wheelhouse partly alive sounds like a great movie isn't it
0: no, Scientist. i was just laughing Is i know you're gonna love this because it's in my wheelhouse <laughs> <laughs> i am an only child chris it's a flaw <laughs> it's a burden and a curse and a for strength. you yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> and a strength for no one but me partly alive which would be an interesting title for a horror movie. Love it. it. Doesn't really set your teeth on edge. Well, partly alive. <laughs> Scientists have revived cells in brains from dead pigs. But this is one of those things. This is like if you dig out a vial of amber colored liquid from a crypt, don't fucking open it. If you get a skull, don't take it out of its like reliquary. And don't revive dead cells from dead pigs.
0: Yeah. So this is a headline that we will look back in 50 years yeah. uh, when we're being harvested exactly. for our by the pigs. water by these zombie pig <laughs> brains. We're like, you know what? We should have stopped there. Speaking of zombie pigs... This is a perfect excuse for me to
1: recommend to stop like right now, like just pull over to the side of the road, run out of your car, go into the nearest home, (laughs) get rid of whoever's living in there, sit down in front of their television.
0: Legally, we can't encourage If you
1: just speak into the remote and just say two words, upstream color. It is one of the most brilliant films you're ever going to see. And
0: just go watch it. Your life will be better. I, a couple of nights ago, was going to watch a movie, and I was like, I think maybe I'll watch Primer again <sighs> as sort of like a lead-up to see Upstream Car again. Yeah. But then I was like, I don't know that I have the... <laughs> you gotta be like you gotta be ready you gotta be ready, ready to
1: listen that's not a second screen experience,
0: yeah you abs- need to yes. you need to stare at the screen
1: and and actually like plot things out on graph paper yeah. when watching primer, which
0: will not help you at all with upstream color like yeah. I, I think upstream color is wonderful, but it's so interesting that he with his two films, one is so tightly constructed like the I believe he's an engineer or programmer mm-hmm. by training yeah and then the other one is so. Like hippieish when you talk about yeah, like, like it talk is. about somebody who was able to somehow turn off the analytical side oh and God, allow his so free brilliant. associative mind. Make, to if you something. like audio engineering,
1: hogs and inexplicability, then this is <laughs> a who movie doesn't? for you, um, Chris. My next headline is a sound. Don't look. What do you think that's the sound of? Horse drawn carriages. That's the sound of your impending death. Take take a look now. (laughs) Whoa! That's the sound of Boston Dynamics' latest, quote-unquote, research project, which is a troop of robotic dogs pulling a tractor trailer. And that's the sound that you're going to hear at night when you wake up in a cold sweat and you hear something coming down the stairs in your home. And those robotic dogs, Chris? No, no. They don't care about you. They're not looking to cuddle up. Yeah, they're, they're not robots. looking to circle. Their robots are looking to kill you.
0: And that's the sound they're going to make. Remind me, are you a Black Mirror watcher? Yes. Did you see the episode that has, um, I think it's called Metalhead from the newest season? I haven't seen the newest season yet. There's an episode, and I'm not going to spoil anything, Uh about a future. And the design of the robots that they use in it look a lot like those. I am certain whoever wrote for the show had seen this design. And that makes it all the more chilling to have seen the science fiction version and to see it in real life. Yeah. Wow. That's a great video.
1: My last one for you. I think you're going to like this one. Charlotte Bronte's hair found in ring on Antiques Roadshow. Say, experts. Because only experts could judge that. Well, sure. You're not going to ask just anybody. I should uh, elaborate. Absolutely. (laughs) I should elaborate that the Antiques Roadshow that we're talking about is the English version, not the US version, which is a guilty pleasure of mine. (laughs) I don't know why. I could watch 45 hours or days of Antiques Roadshow episodes, and it's like a time out of mind. It's like living in a place where nothing can touch me. And I find it just, whenever it's on, I can't not watch it. The connection to what we're doing is Bronte. (laughs) Bronte was the name of one of the screenwriters who, with Alan Carr, was credited on Greece. And so I was like, oh, a woman named Bronte wrote the screenplay. But come to find out,
0: it was a man. A man named Bronte. Uh, Any relation to Charlotte Bronte? The screenwriter guy? Is he the descendant? I don't think so. But Um, you can't say for
1: sure that it's not. I can't say Good for sure no- that it's not <laughs> an unidentified woman said it had belonged to her late father-in-law. It had an inscription on the inside of the ring bearing the name of the author of Jane Eyre and the date of her death in 1855. I've got goosebumps now thinking about it. It's got a hinge on it and inside there's plaited hair. I think it may be the hair of Charlotte Bronte. The woman told the show's jewelry expert, Jeffrey Munn, Munn said there was very little reason to doubt this. It was a convention to make jewelry out of hair in the 19th century. Wow, Isn't that fun. a simpler time, Chris? There was a terror of not being able to remember the face and character of the person who had died. It wasn't an uncommon thing to happen. Presumably, he's not referring to death. The ring opens like a little biscuit tin lid, and amazingly, we see this hair work within. It echoes a bracelet Charlotte wore of her two sisters' hair. So it's absolutely the focus of the mid to late 19th century, and also the focus of Charlotte Bronte. He believed it was utterly and completely credible that the hair had been
0: Bronte's. And that's just the jewelry expert. I wonder what the hair expert would say. Without the hair, the ring's
1: value would be 25 pounds. With the hair and the inscription, he valued it at 28 (laughs) pounds. No, I'm just kidding. 20,000 (laughs) pounds. Just kidding. Anyway, those are my headlines. Oh, those are good. What an exciting
0: world we live in. What a
1: fascinating, modern, yet antiquarian world we live in.
0: Fantastic. There you go. Well, Jason...
1: Oh, right. I almost forgot.
0: What did you almost? <laughs> this is me. <laughs> that was definitely listening. No, my, I was listening to you. Danny and Sandy flying off in what before our eyes has transformed into a flying car for some reason, with singing and dancing well wishers in their wake is one vision of the passage into adulthood which seems just as right for 1958-1959 where the story is set or 1978 when the film was released. But that's only one view of that passage. And in the interest of fairness, we leave you with its mirror image. From 1967, almost exactly halfway between those two poles...